0: We'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one. I am so jazzed <laughs> about this about this teaching and about this time that we're going to be in this gospel. I am looking forward to it so much. Uh, just busting at the seams here. I don't know if that was apparent in a couple of the emails I've sent recently, but I just I can't wait. So I've been looking forward to this morning. I had a conversation again yesterday with someone who was saying that they were talking to a friend who was having trouble understanding why you would spend time studying the Old Testament. In fact, even making the comment, well, that's in the Old Testament. I don't even like the phrase Old Testament. I like Older Testament. That works for me. Or the Hebrew Scriptures. But I don't like calling it the Old Testament Testament. Because when you look at it that way I think you start to separate out God's word from itself. This this whole thing is God's word. From Genesis to Revelation we have been studying the word of God. And from Genesis through 2 Kings we have looked at the primary character or person that we have studied for the last five years has been Jesus Christ. Though he doesn't show up in the flesh living and walking and breathing among us until we begin this morning in in Matthew. He did show up a few times, actually, in the flesh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. But it is about Him. Behold, I come, He says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of Me. So whether you're in Leviticus or Matthew, whether you're in Isaiah or John, the point is Jesus. We talked about that last week a little bit. That's why we went through, I believe, that's why the Lord led us through the books of the kings. 1 and 2 Samuel, First and Second King. So that we could look at this and realize that as great as some human beings may be, such as David, they still don't measure up to the standard set by Jesus. And so we come to Jesus now and the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. We studied them in Genesis. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nachshan, Nachshan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam Rehoboam the father of Abijah Abijah the father of Asa Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram And Joram the father of Uzziah Uzziah was the father of Jotham Jotham the father of Ahaz Ahaz the father of Hezekiah You recognizing some of these names as we go through now? See again the value of the time spent In 1st and 2nd Kings And in the books of Samuel is that now this is not just some kind of vague genealogy, but you begin to see names and go, Oh, I know that guy. Oh, I remember what he did. He's in Jesus' genealogy? What's she doing here? And we read on. Hezekiah, verse 10, was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jechaniah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim was the father of Adzor. Adzor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan was the father of Jacob or Yaakov, Jacob was the father of Joseph from the, hus- the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born who is called the Messiah I'll point out real quickly the phrase by whom there is in the feminine form so it's relating to Mary and not to Joseph Matthew's very distinct as he's writing this who Jesus was born by and it wasn't by Joseph Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now this all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord Jesus, As we begin to consider your life from the moment of conception through your horrific death and your fantastic resurrection all the way to the point of your ascension. Lord, as we study these things and look at these things, we pray that our hearts will be drawn to you as never before. We pray that You will be lifted up and proclaimed in this place not just as great Lord, not just as great teacher or fantastic healer, but but Lord Jesus, that You would be proclaimed here as God. I ask, Father, as we study these words that these words would not just be words. Father, I disagree with those who think Bible study is about head knowledge. I believe and have seen that Your Word gets into our hearts that affects change in us like nothing else. And so I pray for this change. And I pray, Father, as we begin to study the gospel according to Matthew, that the gospel would go out from this place. That people would begin to hear more and more the voices of of people in this fellowship speaking Jesus' name. Declaring salvation by His name. Father, I pray that we would see a response in this region to the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray for the power and the motivation by your Holy Spirit to take all the things that are coming into our hearts and give them back out into this world. That we would not be alone in our salvation, but would be surrounded by a a crown, as Paul said, of those who are saved by your grace and your mercy. Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. Expound upon these things and get it into our hearts, Father as you so perfectly and powerfully do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the author is Matthew. We know that with assurance. This one-time tax collector whose life and identity were forever altered by his encounter with a man named Jesus. Matthew was, like so many people before they met Jesus, a man of questionable character. Now you can't draw out a scripture and say, well Matthew did this or Matthew did that. But you can look at the company he kept and get a sense of who Matthew was before Jesus came into his life. Skipping over into Matthew chapter 9 verse 9, the Bible tells us that as Jesus went on from there he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now you may have heard this, but Jews in the day hated the tax collectors. Things haven't changed so much, have they? Matthew worked for the IRS. Matthew was the auditor. And the tax collectors in his day were known for bilking people for more than the actual taxes they owed. So his his job alone makes Matthew a bit questionable. But it tells us going on that it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. These are the people Matthew hung with. Other tax collectors, sinners, people of ill repute. Well, the Pharisees saw this, and they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Mark that, brothers and sisters. Jesus takes it a step further and says, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. You can do an awful lot in your life to sacrifice for the Lord. You can do ministry. You can choose the hard road. You can make all kinds of concessions for other people, sacrificing and all the while watching the corners of your mouth draw downward as you just get tired of all the ministry. But by the Lord, I'm going to do it for people. God love them. Or you can have compassion. And That's what Jesus wants, compassion, not just sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And so before we even are out the gate, we know Matthew, the author of this this gospel, was touched by Jesus in a way that only Jesus can touch people. This gospel message is clear before we even read a single word that Jesus meets us where we are and brings us to where God is. And that's grace. That is the beauty of the message. Grace always changes a person. Let me tell you something. You don't have to know the Bible forwards and backwards to tell someone about Jesus. All you got to know is what He did to you. All you have to know is how He's changed your life. How He's offered grace to your person. And you take that out and say, I don't know a whole lot about these other things but I know Jesus and I know He loves me, and I know He's changed my life in ways I I can't hardly even describe. You start taking that message to people, and you will see an interest increase. Well, that's Matthew, this man of questionable character who has chosen to write what some have called one of the two key books of the entire Bible, the other one being Genesis. I would add Revelation. So you got Genesis, Matthew, and Revelation. If you only had those three, and praise God we don't. We have all 66. But if we only had those three, we would be incredibly blessed. The 19th century French skeptic, a man by the name of Renan, said it is the most important book in Christendom, the most important that has ever been written. And this guy didn't even believe in much of the miracles. This guy was a skeptic looking at everything Scripture said and saying, not sure I buy that, not sure I buy that, but when it came to the Gospel of Matthew, Renan said, there is no more important book in all of the church. Well, I don't need a skeptic's help to realize the Gospel according to Matthew is the perfect lead-off into what we call the New Testament. You could call it a bridge document. And I don't mean bridge like the Bridge Christian Fellowship. I mean bridge in the true meaning of the word. It bridges, it spans the Hebrew Scriptures into the New Testament. It bridges the gap for us in a remarkable way. It takes us across the gulf from the prophets of the promises to the Prince of Peace. Matthew, that's his intention as he's writing More than any other writer Matthew connects to the Hebrew prophets He gathers together in this gospel More Old Testament, Older Testament Hebrew prophecies And their fulfillment by Jesus Than any other place in the entire New Testament No book, no letter comes close To the reference to prophecy That Matthew covers in his gospel Why does he do this? A couple of things to note as we begin here Number one, the Gospel according to Matthew is a book first written to and for the Jews. And we need to understand that context before we get into this. Of the four Gospels that were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew's Gospel is a Hebrew Gospel. A Gospel written by a Hebrew man with a Hebrew mindset to the Hebrew people. The first century church fathers were absolutely in agreement on this. Men like Papias and Irenaeus and Eusebius confirmed that the gospel according to Matthew was actually first written in Hebrew. And we don't have that copy anymore. It was later translated during Matthew's life into Greek. But the original text they know, they understand, was Hebrew. And this going back to men who lived in the first century said, Oh yeah, there was a Hebrew copy of Matthew. That was the first that he wrote. Why is that important? Well, think about it this way. Of the four Gospels, Mark was written primarily for a Roman audience. Luke was written primarily for a Greek audience, a real thinking audience. A lot of proofs in there. John was written primarily for believers. There are things in John that are hard to get unless you believe. Until you believe. In fact, all of John's gospel is about bringing you to that point of belief so that you understand the big picture, which unfolds brilliantly before you. But John also is written with an eye to the Orient, to the East. Matthew wrote his own gospel to his own people, the people of Mashiach, the Hebrew people. Matthew seeks through the blending of prophecy with proof to document the fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies of old in the life and person of Jesus Christ. That's his intention as we begin this gospel understand that. But there's a second reason for the abundance of the Hebrew prophecies. The gospel according to Matthew is a book written about the kingdom. This is the kingdom gospel. He will use the word kingdom in this gospel more than 50 times. And the phrase that we use so often, kingdom of heaven, is peculiar to Matthew's gospel alone. You won't find it anywhere else in the Bible. Kingdom of heaven. It's used 32 times. Now I want to pause and point out an important doctrinal note. And when I say doctrinal, I don't mean dogmatic. Dogmatic means that you're kind of, you know, headstrong about a certain belief whether you have the proof or not. Doctrinal means it is sound, it is biblical. Important doctrinal note that I will be dogmatic about myself. The kingdom and the church are not synonymous terms. Please understand this. The kingdom and the church are not one and the same. While the church is in the kingdom, and about the kingdom, and even for the kingdom, the Church is not the kingdom. That's kind of like saying that Washington is the United States. No, it's not. It's part of the United States. It's in the United States, but it is not the United States. Seattle is not Washington. It's in Washington. It's a part of Washington. Washingtonians live there, but Seattle is not Washington. The Church is not the kingdom. It's in the kingdom Members of the kingdom live there, reside there, are part of it, but it is not the kingdom in and of itself. What's the big deal with this? Then we need to understand that the kingdom is far greater than anything we have yet seen on planet earth. The kingdom is far greater than anything that we, as the church, can accomplish or secure on planet earth doesn't mean we don't try doesn't mean we don't press forward for the sake of the kingdom but we will not bring the kingdom to Jesus he will bring the kingdom to us Jesus is the great bringer of the kingdom at his second coming Jesus said in John 18.36 my kingdom is not of this world If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. My kingdom is greater than this. Greater than the things of the flesh. And Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews about the kingdom. And we should already know, especially since we've just finished studying Samuel and the kings, that this whole kingdom concept is not news to the Jews. This is not something brand new where all of a sudden Jesus came on the scene and started saying, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And suddenly the Jews are going, Kingdom? That's an odd thought. What does he mean, Kingdom? They knew what he meant. They would understand the kingdom promised to David, the kingdom that was lost or that was fast falling apart in the face of Rome and its conquest. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. You may recall... The Lord said to David, When your days are complete, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And there are those in the church that teach, Hey, when Jesus resurrected... And the church was born on the day of Pentecost. That was the start of the kingdom. We are the kingdom. But all of these promises really weren't literal promises to the Jews. They were just spiritual promises, metaphors, a picture of what the church would be. I beg to differ. The language is far too literal to turn into some kind of a weak, flimsy allegory. I'll tell you what, if the kingdom is reigning on planet earth right now, to be honest, it's a pathetic kingdom. Because it is not doing everything Jesus said it would do. And Messiah is not reigning from the temple in Jerusalem over all of the earth. The earth is not flowing into Jerusalem to meet with and worship Messiah. To celebrate the Feast of Boobs, the Zechariah promises will happen in the kingdom. Well, the kingdom is far bigger than us, gang Daniel saw it. Daniel chapter seven verse thirteen says, "I keep look, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a you okay, Annie, <laughs> you know, I can handle Annie walking by. That's not a problem for me. Dog in the barn, I get it. But for goodness' sake, you got a cough, take it outside. <laughs> Back to Daniel." Daniel was looking in the night visions, and he said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one was coming like a son of man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, listen to this, dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Do we see that today? No, we don't. Will we accomplish that by all our effort, by all of our striving, by all of our sacrifice? No, we won't. Daniel said His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, and that's the Jewish people. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve Him and obey Him. And if you can't worship God thinking that in the future you're going to worship alongside the Jews, you better rethink your faith. Because the kingdom is a promise to the people of God, the saints of God who were originally the Jewish people. We don't replace them gang. We are blessed to be grafted in with them. To come alongside them for a greater kingdom than our eyes have yet seen. Now when Jesus arrived on the scene, after 400 years of prophetic silence, the Jewish people were looking for their king and his kingdom. That's what they wanted. And they were looking so hard for the glorious reign of coming Mashiach that they missed the suffering Messiah who had to come first. How could they possibly miss it? Because they weren't studying the word. Why does Rick keep saying, come Wednesday night, be in the Word, make sure you're getting the teaching. Why would you spend the time in Bible study? So you don't miss His coming. So you don't miss what He's doing. He is doing far more than we realize. Far more than a teaching once a week can show you. I just encourage you with this, gang. The Jewish people should have seen Jesus coming. They should have recognized the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That chapter alone is so powerfully packed with the truth of the coming servant of God. And the Jewish people, had they read it, had they read Psalm 22, had they been studying through the word, would have seen him coming. But they didn't. They glommed on to the kingdom. And the promises of the great coming king. But they hung to that so tightly that they missed the suffering servant Jesus when he came. So what does Matthew do? He sets out to document for them Jesus is in fact this king. Jesus was the king they were looking for. It's just he had a job to do first. He had to suffer first before being glorified. And Matthew wastes no time in getting started with documentation to support Jesus as the king. As we open up to chapter 1, that's why it's here. It's interesting to me that Matthew doesn't begin on the hills poetically outside of Bethlehem. He doesn't start with young Mary in Nazareth. He doesn't start with the travels of the wise men or even with the appearance of angels. What Matthew does is he begins on paper with a list of names. That's where he begins his gospel. I'm right now in the process of working on my visa documentation for travel to Ghana so that we can go sometime this fall, I don't know when, to to get our kids, our three kids that we're adopting. And I'm amazed at the paperwork that you have to go through. Just to get a visa to travel to Ghana, I had to get a yellow fever vaccination certificate, which I'm still feeling, with the official vaccination stamp of the state of Washington on it. Then I have to fill out the application for the Ghana Entry Permit Visa form in quadruplicate and in all capital letters and submit that with four passport photos. On top of that, I get to mail it along with my passport and a money order, mind you. Not a personal check, a money order for 80 bucks. And then I get my visa that says, All right, you're allowed to travel to this country. All because someone in the Ghanaian consulate needs documentation. What a pain. And you know if you ever have to work on documentation for anything, it can get to be a little bit heavy. Government is in to paperwork. Can you imagine having the job of sifting through all that paperwork? I'd drive myself nuts I would be crazy unfortunately this is how people often approach the documentation of names in the genealogies of scripture let me ask you a question how many of you have read through the Bible? just one time through the entire Bible good how many of you when reading through the Bible word for word skip the genealogies? or rush through them really quickly yeah blah 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 blah, blah 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 where's the fun stuff you know the genealogies there are there for a reason and what we've discovered even in some of the Hebrew genealogies in the Hebrew scriptures is when we pause to look at them when we slow down long enough to go why is this here it blows our minds God is not tossing in irrelevant stuff just to pad his word. Every word's important, gang. As you open the gospel according to Matthew, you hold in your hands what is arguably the most important document, both in the scriptures and in the history of the world. And I'm not even talking about the whole gospel, I'm talking about the first 17 verses. The documentation we have in verses 1 through 17 is I believe the most important document in history you ever see the uh, Declaration of Independence the original one in Washington D.C. have you ever gone and and, and taken a look at that it's really impressive or maybe you've you've gone to Israel or, or when it came to Seattle you saw the Dead Sea Scrolls and you look at those those writings and those old crusty papers you go wow that's really cool you hold in your hands a document far more significant than either one of those and it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ I'm not just trying to get you pumped up about reading a genealogy either. But I want you to think about this. Matthew begins with the legitimacy of the Lord. He sets out for the Jewish people for his own, saying, let me show you why Jesus has the legal right to the throne. Let me explain to you why I say that Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is Messiah the King. Let's start at the very beginning and give the groundwork, the documentation, to know exactly who this Jesus really is and what's great is the people of Judah when they first returned to the land after 70 years of Babylonian captivity they sought to restore the priesthood but for some There was a problem Ezra chapter 2 Verse 62 Tells us And this is after They came back They went to Babylon On their back now And it says Of the sons of the priests The sons of Havia The sons of Hakaz, The sons of Barzillai Who took a wife From the daughters Of Barzillai The Gileadite And he was called By their name These guys Searched among Their ancestral registration But they could not Be located Therefore they were Considered unclean And excluded from The priesthood What does that mean? These guys came back And started looking for their genealogy. The genealogy to the Hebrew is so important because it establishes their right in their tribe and in their kingdom. And so these guys came back and said saying, hey, we're Levites. We should be able to serve in the temple. But they couldn't prove it and so they were cast out. Jesus doesn't have that problem. Jesus' ancestry, His genealogy, is established perfectly. Exactly. Precisely. I want to give you three things to note this morning and then we're done about this genealogy of Jesus. Number one, this king holds a unique position. This king holds a unique position. Verse one says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's first sentence establishes Jesus' unique position. Through Abraham, Jesus has a unique position in the nation. Through David, he has a unique position on the throne. Now Jesus said this, John chapter 10 verse 1. He said, Truly I say to you, He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus entered by the door. Son of Abraham, son of David. The line is legal. The line is accurate. He is one of the Jewish people. He came in through the front door, not sneaking in, not climbing over the wall. The fold that Jesus is talking about is Israel. And Jesus the shepherd came in through the front door. But notice the order in which Matthew already uses these first two names. It's unusual. He says, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It should be the other way around. It's backwards. It should be the son of Abraham, the son of David, because Abraham came first. So the son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, on down to David, as we read down in verse 6. Abraham normally would come first. Why does Matthew write it the way he does? To establish the preeminence of the king over the promise of the man. The preeminence of the king over the promise of the man. Again, he holds a unique position. The promise was made through Abraham. Genesis 12.3 I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. So anyone who is a part of the family of Abraham is a part of bringing this blessing to the world. The promise is given to the man. And it's an important promise. But the preeminence of Jesus comes through the line of David. comes through the rule of David the king. It's Jesus' right to rule that makes the promise of Abraham possible. Does that make sense to you? The fact that he is son of David makes the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham possible. In other words, it's Jesus' greatness that yields his grace. It is the fact that he is the preeminent one. He is the king. He is the ruler over over all. That he has the right then to say, I'm dispensing grace to you. If not that, if he was just an underling, if he was just one of the angels, if he was just a man, what right does he have to offer grace to me for all eternity? But if he's the king, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, then he can dispense grace. What position does Jesus hold in your life? What place does He have? Is He a great man, great teacher, great example for us all, or is Jesus Christ the great King? And you know how you know what position He holds in your life? The way you respond to Him. The obedience that you show toward Him. A king is one before whom we fall on our knees. A king is one to whom we give our full allegiance. A king is one who holds the right to rule over every aspect of my life, not just the aspects that I choose to give to him. The true king is ruler and king over everything. Psalm 2.6, God said, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Matthew 28.18 Jesus said all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth And Philippians 2.10 says that the name of Jesus Every knee will bow Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of God the Father And I'll tell you what If Jesus shows up on a Wednesday night Every knee's going to bow wherever you are If Jesus shows up when you happen to have a racquetball game planned Every knee's going to hit the ground If Jesus shows up when you're doing something incredibly important for work, you will be on your knees. Because a king demands that kind of worship. Is Jesus your king, wherever you are? Does he hold that unique position in your life? What's interesting about this genealogy, by the way, is that the enemies of Jesus never questioned it. You go through the four gospels, you don't have a single time when the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees come up and try to question the legality of Jesus' genealogy because anybody could find it. All you had to do was go to the temple. They keep all the records there. All the genealogies of all the people and say, okay, we want to find out about this Jesus of Nazareth. Is it, as they say, is he one of those, you know, the son of David, son of Abraham? Is that true? Oh, yeah, it is. Follow the line. It's exactly true. Of course after the burning of the temple in A.D. 70 all those genealogies were lost which is amazing to me because just prior to that Matthew wrote his gospel and the only surviving Hebrew genealogy we have is that of Jesus Christ the one and true king. This king has a unique position position number two this king has an unusual partiality you Bible students know there's another curious characteristic in this listing of names. And it's the presence of five women. And not just any women. It's unusual for a woman even to be listed in a Hebrew genealogy. Go back into the Old Testament scriptures and look it up. And look at how the men are the ones who are listed, who are numbered. The women are not. That's just the way they did it. But Jesus has five women in his genealogy, and they're not just any women. Like Matthew himself, they are women of questionable character. Verse 3, we see the woman Tamar. Tamar is the one who in Genesis 38 prostituted herself with her father-in-law, Judah. And that's how Perez and Zerah, their sons, were born. And the genealogical line of Jesus continued on. That's astounding. It's a little embarrassing. You know, Matthew, couldn't you have just left Tamar out? Or how about in verse 5? The second woman is Rahab. Why would you put Rahab in the genealogy of the Messiah? For crying out loud, that's the prostitute of Jericho who sheltered and saved the spies, Joshua chapter 2. And I still have to ask the question how did the spies know to go to the house of a prostitute anyway? (laughs) What were they doing there? But she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab. Then you get to the the next woman and and you kind of breathe a sigh of relief at least for a moment. You say, Ruth. Okay, Ruth. Oh yeah, we we studied Ruth, the book of Ruth. Oh, it's a great romance. She's a faithful woman hanging with Naomi, coming back into the land. We love Ruth. Well, there's a problem with Ruth too. Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite which is what Ruth was, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. So along comes Ruth, a wonderful person though she is, faithful though she is, how in the world does she get into the Hebrew lineage of Messiah? I'll tell you how. Grace. She gets in the same way you get in. The same way I get in. Ruth chapter 1 verse 16, Ruth said to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go I will go, where you lodge I will lodge, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And check this out, Isaiah chapter 56, the prophet said, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people, The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. In other words, if you make a decision for me, the Lord says, Even to Israel, if you decide to take me as your God, you're in. Even if you are not born of Hebrew lineage. Even if you're a Moabite like Ruth, yes. Even if you're an outsider Moabite like Ruth. You are the foreigner. I am the foreigner, and when we join ourselves to the Lord like Ruth, the curse is lifted. The next woman we see here is in verse six, Bathsheba. You know that story. Still cracks me up that her name is so closely tied to the first time David saw her taking a bath. You know, so it's real easy to remember her. First time I heard that story, I never forgot the name Bathsheba after that. (laughs) And here she is in the genealogy of Jesus. With these other women of curious and questionable character. And yet, all of these women are counted in the genealogy of the king with unusual partiality, with glory, with dignity, with honor. Which, ladies, is how the Lord views women. With dignity and honor and love. Something the world does not understand about Christianity. As though men are called to lead, women are also called with dignity and honor. Women are loved and elevated and respected, not demeaned. The world would say, oh yeah, Christians are bigoted and Christians are hard on women and Christians are all about the man thing. And that's not true. Jesus wasn't. And these women are proof positive of that. Ironside said what a list this is how it tells of the grace that is in the heart of God who in his sovereignty chose to bring these five women into the line of promise and I said well five women I only count four well down in verse 16 another woman is mentioned Mary sweet young Mary and Matthew makes a subtle shift here As I mentioned a bit earlier, he doesn't call Joseph the father of Jesus. All the way through the genealogy, it's Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Asa, or Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. When you get down to Joseph, and Joseph was not the father of Jesus, no, he was the husband of Mary, by whom, remember again, by whom is in the feminine, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. So who's the daddy? I mean, kids in Nazareth could have said that to Jesus. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy, Jesus? Come on. We heard all the story about the angels and all that stuff. We know that your mama is Mary. We see that in your genealogy. Where's your dad? Who's your dad? Mary's name in this genealogy gang, Mary's name has been impugned by unbelieving skeptics who reject what Matthew goes on to tell us in verse 18 about Jesus' daddy. Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. And Matthew is very specific. Before they had any kind of intimate sexual relationship at all. Jesus. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention any words about this. And I love that about Matthew. He establishes that genealogical line and then he goes on to say, Hold on, let me explain to you why Joseph is not his father. Because his father, this child, was fathered by the Holy Spirit. This child is of the Lord. What do you think? Do you buy it? And Do you buy the tale of the virgin birth of Jesus? Do you accept it as truth that a virgin woman gave birth by the Spirit of God? Wow, I mean that that's a crossing of the divine into the human for the one and only time in all history and we look at that and to be fair as a skeptic you kind of got to go, wow, I, I'm not sure, can I buy that that really happened? Well, 700 years prior, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet said, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the only way it can happen. is if Jesus is, in fact, God with us. But you can go back further than Isaiah. You can go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You Bible students know exactly what it is. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum. The first mention of the Gospel in Scriptures where, where God is speaking to the serpent in the curse. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And when he says her seed, those two words right there should blow our minds. What do you mean her seed? Women don't have seed. Women have AIDS. Men provide the seed and in that one verse the Lord hints at the gospel that there will be a woman who miraculously is given seed by the Holy Spirit and the one born of that union will crush the head of the serpent the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is only possible if the child truly was Emmanuel God with us Isaiah 9.6 says a child will be born to us A son will be given to us And the government will rest on his shoulders And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Check this Mighty God Eternal Father Prince of Peace And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace On the throne of David and over his kingdom To establish it To uphold it with justice and righteousness From then on and forevermore Now with this clearly in mind Note number 3 Not only does this king hold a unique position and this king has an unusual partiality, number three, this king holds an unparalleled preeminence. An unparalleled preeminence. All the generations, watch this verse 17, from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And what's great about the genealogy given in Matthew is we can count it. We can track it down from beginning to end. 14 generations, chapters or verses 2 through 6. And then 14 generations from verses 6 through 11, counting the names. 14 generations from verses 12 to 16, but there's a problem. Because if you really track these names down, what you end up with is 14, 14, 13. Matthew said there were 14 some say, well, maybe that—that's because Mary's added, so Mary's number 14 in the list. But the Hebrew mindset wouldn't think of it that way. Wouldn't really allow for that. The other women—Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba—they're not included, not in terms of counting the number of generations. You know, Tamar was there with Judah, so it's Judah's generation that's, that's counted when you go down and count these generations. But all of a sudden, when you get down to the end of the last 14 generations, it is only 13. But here's the thing. We count Jesus twice. We count him the first time when he came as the suffering servant. We count him the second time when he returns as the great king making 14 generations. The king is coming back. That is his unparalleled preeminence. He's returning. He is the only one ever to do it. To come once, to die, and go away, but then to come back and to rule and reign in his kingdom as he's promised to do. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Pilate, when he was questioning Jesus before the crucifixion, said, So, you are a king? John 18.37 37. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth and everyone who is of the truth. Here's my voice. And my friends, as Matthew will very clearly show us, the king is coming again. Something else that's very exciting about this book is if we pay close attention, we will see the signs that Matthew is describing, that Jesus speaks. And I believe we will recognize that we are in that final season when the king will return. One last thing in this opening documentation I want to share with you this morning. Go back and look at verse 1 just one more time. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew begins his gospel using this phrase the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah literally literally it's the book of the generations the word record is translated there it makes sense it it fits but the word in the Greek and originally in the Hebrew we can assume but we know the Greek word there is book the book of the generations so what what's the big deal it's only used one other time in the whole entire Bible the two places you can find this. Book of the Generations. You might expect to find it back in Malachi or, or maybe Zechariah or Haggai, but you won't. You'd think you'd find this phrase, the Book of the Generations, well, somewhere back maybe in the genealogies of the kings, but it's not. So you'd think, well, Numbers, of course. The Book of the Generations, that's got to be written down in Numbers. It's not there. You have to go all the way back to Genesis. In fact, Genesis chapter 5. Would you turn back there? Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 begins. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Well, that's kind of a cool coincidence. Oh, there's far more to it than that. Matthew beautifully contrasts the book of the generations of Adam with the book of the generations of Jesus. Adam being the first Adam and Jesus being the second Adam. Adam being the one, Paul says in the book of Romans, by whom sin came into the world. Jesus being the one by whom we have the curse lifted and salvation from sin. The first Adam and the second Adam. The book of the generations of Adam, Genesis 5.1. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. But there's still more to this. You Bible students may remember this. But i got to share it with everybody because I don't want a single person to miss this. If you go through the book of the generations of Adam... And you read these ten names that cover these ten generations: Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. If you look at the meaning of their names and lay them out in sentence form, they speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Check this out: Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means subject to death. Kenan means sorrowful. Mahalalel means from the presence of God. Jared means one comes down. Enoch means dedicated. Methuselah means dying he shall sin, or in his death it will come. Lamech means to the poor and lowly, and Noah means comfort. As a sentence, man appointed, subject to death, sorrowful, from the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated. And dying he shall sin, to the poor and lowly, comfort. And that is the gospel message of Jesus Christ right there. In Genesis chapter 5, the book of the generations of Adam, Matthew turns around and starts his gospel the same way, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing I want to leave you with this morning as we intro this book. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reaches back to Genesis 5 using this opening phrase, the book of the generations. How does a person... Get into the generations of Adam How does a person get into Adam's lineage? Well the answer is very simple You're born into it We all are We are all sons and daughters of Adam We all can trace that lineage all the way back To the first man created And draw it forward from there We are all children of Adam We were born into it How do you get into the lineage of Jesus Christ? You're born into it You're born into it Not because you or your parents go to the right church. Not because Jesus had a secret child with Mary Magdalene that carried on the family name. No, as many as received him, John 1.12 tells us, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus says to see the kingdom of God that Matthew is going to talk about so richly in this book you have got to be born into it Jesus said truly I say to you John 3.3 unless one is born again you cannot see the kingdom of God so if you want to be a part of the kingdom you have to be born into it that's what puts us into the book of the generations of Jesus Christ there's another name for the book of the generations of Jesus Christ it's the book of life it's the Lamb's book of life. And that's why the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Yeshua, because Jesus saved.